This is The Resilient Life, where we believe that every human will struggle in this life. Our challenge is to struggle well. I'm Ryan Mannion. I lost my brother to war, my mom to cancer, and I'm the daughter of a retired Marine. I'm also a wife, mom, author, and president of one of the nation's leading veteran service organizations. Join me and some incredible guests as we explore the value of struggling well through life's inevitable challenges. Welcome to another episode of the Resilient Life Podcast. I'm excited to bring you today's guest, Wesley Hunt. I'm going to tell you a little bit about him to kick it off. Wesley is a veteran and former congressional candidate for the 7th District in Texas, where he was born and raised in a military family. He graduated from West Point with a bachelor's degree in leadership and management in 2004 and received his commission to the Army after West Point. Wes spent eight years in the Army as an aviation branch officer and an Apache Longbow helicopter pilot, deploying once to Iraq and twice to Saudi Arabia. Upon completion of his military service and honorable discharge as a captain, Wesley attended Cornell University, where he earned not one, not two, but three master's degrees. Wesley is active in many organizations in the Houston area, where he serves on boards for the Harris County Center for Mental Health, the Greater Houston Pachyderm Club, and his alma mater of St. John's School. He and his wife, Emily, have two daughters. Did I get that all right? Perfect. I mean, I'm taking on the road for my, uh, for my next run. <laughs> there we go. It's so great to have you on the show today. As I was telling you before we started, um, we definitely have uh, some mutual friends and I've heard a lot about you. I followed your congressional run, um, but I'd love to start out with your military service because uh, you come from a military family, but I'm not sure that people understand the depth of what that means for you. So can you tell us a little bit about your family's history of service? Great, thank you so much for having me on. Really appreciate it, I'm actually honored to do this. And um, you know, as you and your family gets it, my family is kind of cut from, from a similar cloth, just can't help ourselves. Uh, we inherently believe that this is the greatest country in the world. And while certainly we have a checkered past in many ways, as we all do, this country is where, where it is because of the progress of those that gave their lives for the preservation of this amazing country. And my dad did 23 years in the army. He retired as a, as a uh, lieutenant colonel. Uh, my sister went to West Point and my family first. So she did 23 years in the army, all active duty. Uh, she retired as a lieutenant colonel, military intelligence officer. Um, she's 10 years older than my brother and I. So I went to West Point, graduated class of 2004. My sister was 93, I was 2004. I did eight years active duty and my brother, is also a West Point graduate. And uh, he went on to do five years in the Navy, but we don't hold that against him. We still reform, even on, even on Army Navy game day, it's kind of weird, but it's all good. Um, so there's about 60 years worth of military service just in my immediate family. And I always talk about that. And I thank you for leading with that uh, because that's just the kind of services sacrifice that it takes to preserve our values and our way of life. And I don't think my family is special quite frankly, for there are millions of families that have sacrificed a whole hell of a lot more than we have for us to have this country. And I think, interestingly enough, we live in a time where we are forgetting that to a certain extent. And that's part of the reason why I ran for Congress and why I will continue to find ways to serve in the public sectors because we need to continue to remind them. 
that this country is the greatest country in the world. I couldn't agree more. And um, you and your siblings sound like a bunch of slackers, clearly. <laughs> I love, you know, Travis graduated from, my brother graduated from Navy in 2004. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, that was a pivotal time because I, I talk a lot about your class. And um, I've talked about it several times with classmates of Travis's, this idea that you entered in to the service academy in a peaceful time, mm -hmm. not understanding. And my dad always says it. My dad, a retired colonel in the Marine Corps, says that this generation of men and women post 9-11, he said, you know, they, they do more in two years than I did in my 30 years of service. And he's very quick to say that. Um, but talk to me a little bit about what that was like, you know, entering in and you're following in your, a little bit in your, your family's footsteps, your sister's footsteps, going to West Point and then 9-11 happens. Yeah. What, what, what does that mean for you? What are you feeling? What are your classmates feeling? Yeah, well, it, you know, our, our class got to West Point 2000 and for those who are not familiar with the academies, the first two years are what you call free, which means that you could go to any academy for the first two years and then you can opt out before your first day of class, your junior year, without owing the government a dime or, or, or any service. And so 9-11 happened in the beginning of my sophomore year, which meant that basically our entire, our entire class knew that we were going to go to war and we could have opted out of it, actually. And quite frankly, the overwhelming majority of my class stayed. And I'm actually very proud to be able to say that. I remember exactly where I was, what I was doing, what barracks I was living in, sitting at my desk when 9-11 uh, happened. And it forever changed the trajectory of my life. And I always talk about my 14 classmates that were also killed in the global war on terror. And the greatest honor that I will ever have in my natural life will be uh, to give the eulogy at 25 years old for one David Frazier, who was a good friend of mine. He was one of my classmates, born and raised in Houston. He was killed on his last mission, November 26, 2006. That man is the reason why we get to wake up every morning and put our feet on free sovereign American soil and breathe free American air. And men and women like him are why we get to do that. And so for our class, they've always kind of been our rallying cry and we never forget them. We never forget their sacrifice and we never forget their service. And even though this war took a pretty heavy toll on our class, I think our class intimately understands exactly what it means to put it all in line and accept the responsibility when you take an oath, even if it means giving your life. Yeah, I think about that a lot. And, you know, it's interesting because I have the... I have the unique opportunity every year to be able to go back and speak at the Naval Academy. I've been doing it for seven years. I speak to the second class along with um, one of my brothers. Well, it wasn't his classmate. He graduated in 2003, um, a Marine by the name of Brian Stan. And Brian and I go back and speak to the second class every year. And we find that more and more, they're a little bit disengaged from the challenges that that you guys face, you know, it's it's almost um, and I, I turn to Brian a lot and I say, God, we're getting old because I don't know, you know, in the beginning when we were speaking, we were still engaged in heavy conflict. Um, 
But now the message that Brian gives is no matter what, when you're entering into a service academy, I love how he talks about, you know, the majority of the men and women that you're going to lose from this class are not going to be in war. They're going to be from training accidents. So let's not forget that. And um, I just think there's such a responsibility when you enter a service academy to know that you're entering a dangerous profession. And it may only be for five years that, you know, that you need to give back, but it may be a lifetime. It may be a career. And I give so much credit to the kids, frankly, because they are kids at the time who enter into these service academies, knowing that ultimate responsibility that rests on their shoulders. So um, I thank you and your family for um, your siblings for their service and for stepping up and to serve at the second uh, greatest service academy that exists. In- <laughs> I bet you were saying that all Saturday, though. Yeah, that was a tough <laughs> game. But I said, you know what? 2020 can have an Army win for the Army. I know, right? <laughs> we'll take the 2021 win. Sure. Um, I'd love to talk to you about, uh, you know, I, I was doing some research on you, and I found some interesting things. And and I'd like to touch on it a little bit as it pertains to what's happening in our country with uh, race relations. And and I read that your great grandfather was actually a slave. And you go from not being free to having multiple people in your family fighting for freedom. That's something that's not lost on me and certainly not lost on you, I'm sure. And how has history and the history of your family affected the way that you've approached your life decisions? Yeah, great question. And if you think about the progress in this country, that's what I would much rather focus on is all the things that we actually have gotten right. We are one of the, we are one of the rare countries in the history of this world to make that kind of progress in just a handful of generations. Um, this is my great, great grandfather. His name was Silas Crawford. He was born on Rosedown Plantation about 60 miles north of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And three of his great-great-grandchildren attended West Point. Um, I was able to earn three master's degrees in four years. My brother went to Harvard Business School. My sister has her master's degree in applied mathematics and was a West Point professor as a captain in the major while my brother and I were cadets there. And that can happen only in one place, in one place in the entire world. And, And that's right here in the United States. In the district that I ran for Congress in as a Republican, it was actually the former district of George H.W. Bush. He was the first congressman in, in that seat. It's in the suburbs of Houston. It's an overwhelmingly white district. In the primary, there were six people. There was one black man under 40 and the rest, and there were, there were a few women. There was a Hispanic woman and there, were, and there were three white men. And I won by 32 points, 34 points with no runoff. I tell you that because I realized something that there's a disconnect between the America that I live in that I see every day and the one that I see on television. For I got to run for Congress as a Republican in an overwhelmingly white district and finish a very close second back here on November the 3rd. And I got to wake up every day and live Martin Luther King's dream. I was literally being judged by the content of my character, not by the color of my skin. When I say that, I also recognize that we have a ways to go. We always do. That, that's, that's actually a part of the human condition is that we actually are not created perfectly. We have our flaws, 
But when you spend some time in the Middle East, you spend two years in Saudi Arabia, you, you, you see the world as I have. I've been on every continent with the exception of Antarctica. And I realized very quickly that compared to these countries, we don't really have problems. There are people that are flocking to this country day in and day out just to have the opportunity to be called an American. They wait in line, they wait for years, and sometimes they never even achieve that goal. So sometimes I do recognize that we fall short of perfection and we need to work together to get things done. But I always, always tell people that the rising tide raised the elevation of all ships. And quite frankly, I talk about my 14 classmates that died. They didn't die for white people, for black people, for Asian people, for Hispanic people. They died for Americans. The only way for us to continue to heal and progress and get better is to do it together. I always tell, tell people, turn the TV off. See how you treat other people. See how you are treated. How much does race really matter in your own personal lives? I think you'll find your answer if you're being really honest with yourself. And that's not to excuse certain, incident, certain incidences that we have seen that have been broadcasted all, all over you know, television that are wrong. Yeah. Like it, it is right and wrong. Like when I looked at the George Floyd situation, that situation, it, I didn't really even see it as this is a black man. I saw this as, as in American. Right. This is, but, but we, we are allowing, I think, certain um, groups to divide us in a way that's not indicative or accurate of who we are as a country. And I like kind of being the messenger to describe the country that I know and love which oftentimes since tends to be antithetical to what you see on television. Well, I certainly think that the, the media has done a poor job on both sides of unifying us as a country. I mean, I think that, um, especially, you know, in the midst of a global pandemic, when one of the only things we could do was sit in front of the TV because we're stuck inside our home, stuck inside our homes. And, but what else, can we do, and, and I, I largely agree with a lot of what you're saying, but I do think, you know, again, there are issues that still exist. And outside of just turning off the TV, like what more can we do to be a more unified country? You know, a lot of what I talk about at our organization at the Travis Manion Foundation, we live by this motto of if not me, then who? Those are the five words that my brother spoke before he went back for a second deployment. It's the ethos that we try to drive into every veteran, volunteer, anyone that's involved with our organization. And I've had conversations with our staff where, where you know, when, when things were happening, when there was racial divide and, and they talked about, well, what can we do? We need to do more. And I said, we just need to do what we're doing because in what we're doing, getting out there every day, being this collective group at the Travis Manning Foundation, we are a diverse group of people from all different walks of life. And we're coming together for the common goal to instill character in our country, right? So by doing that, we're playing a part in, in, in the solution and being the solution to all of these social issues. But what else do you think that we can do in order to unify? I mean, it's an easy thing to say, just turn off the TV, right? And I agree with that, but what else? We need to, we need to understand history and we, we, we need to understand our history and we need to understand what progress is. So if, if you think that this is racial division to a lot of people, we, you need a history lesson. 
Uh, at one point at West Point during the Civil War, you had West Point graduates that would spend four years together, training together, learning together, eating together, and they became dear friends together and soldiers and classmates. They entered a time at war during the Civil War and you had West Point classmates that were killing each other. That's division. I talk about my grandfather, my great-great-grandfather being a slave. I talk about my father, who was alive and well, 72 years old, lives right here in Houston, Texas, about 30 minutes away from where I sit right now. Born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana, sat on the back of buses, my father. There was a time in this country when we had Vietnam soldiers that didn't volunteer, they were drafted, that would come back losing sometimes their limbs, oftentimes their minds to do PTSD. They get off the airport dressed in their full uniforms and they were spat on in this country. You see, a lot of times we lose perspective because we see something happen uh, because of social media and because of our smartphones. We walk around with a supercomputer every day. You, get, you see this one incident that, that, that's on the Fox app, CNN app, then it's on all news channels, then it's on Twitter, then it's on FB, then it's on IG, it's on everything. And you're like, oh my gosh, the world's on fire. But only one thing happened. And what we do lose is just this perspective of growth. What I find fascinating at West Point is our barracks there are named after famous generals and former presidents like Eisenhower and Grant. Uh, there's a MacArthur barracks and many others. And of course, there's a Robert E. Lee Barracks. Now, I spent a semester living in Robert E. Lee Barracks, which I found fascinating because here I am living in the building uh, named after a man who fought against the rights of people who looked like me, fought against yeah. the rights of my great-great-grandfather. I would walk under, the, under that threshold every day with a smile on my face, thinking to myself, this is one hell of a school, one hell of a country. And if it were named anything differently, I would have that perspective. But we as Americans are not defined by names on buildings. We're not defined by statues. We are defined by being Americans first. So to answer your question, I think more than just turning off the TV, we need to have a re-education as to the progress that we have made. And of course, in certain instances, there are certainly uh, certain amounts of racial injustice. I mean, I've been a black guy for like 38 years. I've been black my whole life, last I checked. Okay, so I get it, I get it. I've seen it, I've experienced it, but holistically speaking, if I compare my life to the life that my father led, my dad always tells me, son, as a black man in this country, you don't have problems because I did. Right. Now, let's take that example and let's build and let's grow on it. But the idea of demonizing every little mistake that we do, I think sets us back instead of pushes us forward. Quite frankly, I think we live in a time where people actually do want people, not everybody, you have their crazies on both extremes, don't get me wrong. But in this country today, people just wanna live a good life, want their families to be safe. They want freedom, they want liberty, they want justice. And they wanna rely on people like our families to defend and protect them, that's it. I could not agree more with that. And I think that is the problem today. You touched on a little bit of, with it, with social media. And the, you know, the quickness of how news travels and, you know, it's almost that idea of elephant uh, or uh, whisper down the lane, right? And, it, and yeah. the first person who whispers it by the time it gets the last person, it's a completely different story. But I think we miss the part where there is, and, and frankly, I look at it from the 
uh, political spectrum too. You've got Republicans, you've got Democrats, and and I'm a Republican, but I'm just an American. You know, I'm actually an elected official. I'm I'm the supervisor of my town. I've been so for almost ten years now, and I ran as a Republican. And people often talk to me about this idea of well, you know, how do you govern? You've got Democrats, and I'm like, we don't, I don't I don't look at anybody I serve with as with a D or an R. I look at them as how are we going to work together to make sure that our town is thriving and that we're doing the best for the constituents in which we serve. And I think the mass majority of Americans live just like that. Um, But those are the stories that are not being told. That, That group of people is not the group of people that's being highlighted in the news. It's not the good stories that are out there of how we're working together, how we're coming together to overcome uh, societal issues. It's highlighting these extreme messages and the extreme stories on either side. And uh, yeah, it, I, it probably does set us back. I agree with that. I really do. Um, I saw a quote the other day. It said, it, it said if, you, if you watch the news, you're misinformed. If you don't watch the news, you're uninformed. It, it's, it's, heads, it's a heads you lose, tells you lose type scenario. When I talk about law enforcement, oftentimes, I think, especially this past cycle, I'm uniquely positioned to speak about this, uh, given the fact that in my life, I have certainly been profiled before, maybe not treated as fairly as I should have been treated. When you think about every single interaction that our law enforcement has with our citizens in this country every day, compiled on every week, compiled on every month, compiled on every year, really, they're doing an amazing job. They don't always get it right. But over the course of decades, we're talking about millions of interactions. And most of them, the overwhelming majority, 99 point fill in the blank percent of them go well. You know how? You never hear about it. We are talking about everything from a routine traffic stop to a domestic abuse call to an all out gang war. And we are asking these people to be prepared for all of the above every day. One of the best stories that I heard from a spouse was she was describing to me when I was down here in Houston at the uh, police at the police office. She said, you know, the sound of Velcro is something that I hope to hear every day. I said, what do you mean by that? She said, when my husband or my spouse comes home and I hear, and I hear the sound of Velcro, that means he made it back alive. Now you think about the thousands of families that sit around all day waiting to hear the sound of Velcro and what we ask these people to do for us every day. Now, do they get it right? No, but to your point, we're gonna focus on the 10 incidences that happened this year that are the worst of us. And we're going to ignore the hundreds of thousands of interactions that went quite well. What I do like about what we're seeing is there's there's a healthy distrust that's happening with the media right now. This is the reason why we're seeing the rise in podcasts, especially especially long form podcasts. People are willing to listen 45 minutes because they realize that the headlines are lies. And if anybody wants to be informed, not misinformed or uninformed, they just want to be informed. People are realizing that you need to hear the full story. You need to actually turn the page. Yeah. And this is why even, you know, I was on, I had the opportunity to be on Joe Rogan's podcast a few months ago. It was the coolest thing about the campaign. That guy is awesome. It was so much fun. Why is he doing so well? 
why are people willing to sit and listen for two hours to hear somebody talk about topics? Because 10 years ago, that wouldn't happen. Right. Well, because news had more credibility. Now we're kind of getting over it. And I think hopefully our generation could be generation through technology, through information, through information flow, through ease of getting good information. I remember when I was a kid, I had Encyclopedia Britannica. And now I can look up whatever I want at any time uh, to include who the Mandalorian is, because I'm obsessed with that. It was amazing. <laughs> um, we had that access and hopefully that level of information flow allows us to sift through all the lies to just be informed citizens. And I think we're, I think we're actually moving in that direction. So where do you outside, and I'm a, I'm a big fan of Joe Rogan as well, and I will sit through and listen to uh, all his long form podcasts, but where do you get, where can you get information? So you are informed. Um, if, if you don't have that kind of time, right? Like if I'm coming to you saying, Wes, I, I need quick bites. I need to know what's happening. Is there a place that you go? Yes, there is. There's, so, there's, so there's the Wall Street Journal, in my opinion, that again, it does lean left, but I do think they tend to be more accurate and more fair. There's the Economist that's actually not based out of the United States. So it's an outsider's perspective that also tends to lean left, but we aren't talking, <laughs> we are talking, you know, crazy. And then to kind of give a good juxtaposition of those two, I'll sometimes take a glance at the, uh, at the New York Times, actually. And I think it's important for people to consume multiple angles and multiple political views. Sometimes we bifurcate ourselves, R or D, I don't want to hear the other side. Yep. That's it. And that's, that's, just, that's just unhealthy. That's not critical thinking. I will, I will admit, as optimistic as I am about this country and about the way I view the world, as optimistic as I am, I will say that this is probably, sadly, the, the toughest time that I have seen in terms of people not even being able or being willing to listen to the other side. I think that is, I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges that exists right now. This, um, it, it, it's almost, I have just as many friends that are Democrats that are Republicans. And frankly, I don't care what your political affiliation is. If you're a good person and, and we get along, then I like you. I mean, it, it's as simple as that. And, um, but I have seen so much. I actually read this article um, from the Wall Street Journal it was a few weeks ago and it was an article about how people were not coming home for the holidays, not because of COVID, but because they were so broken from their political ideology. You know, parents that voted for Trump were not accepting of kids that voted for Biden. Uh, kids that voted for Biden were not going, didn't want to go home to their parents that voted for Trump. And and I always think like, how did we get here? But then I also remember that frankly, now this presidential election was perhaps more volatile than many we yeah. have seen. Yeah, but this is kind of what happens every four years, right? I mean, to some degree it is, you, you pick a side. Um, I think this year has been a little bit different because I think there, there's overwhelmingly been this, um, message to people that 
supported or voted for Trump that something was wrong with you, right? Yeah. That you were, that something was wrong with you, that you supported Trump and, and that you were not a good person. And, and I didn't like seeing all of that. I know that very much confused my children who, you know, they just like to hear information and understand what's going on, but they didn't understand this. Well, I don't understand if you pick a, pick a president, then wh why are you bad if you vote for one person versus the other? And, you know, and I really explained it to him. I said, listen, at the end of the day, you decide what you believe in and you, you choose the candidate that most lines up with where, how you feel about that, right? It's, it's as easy as that. And you never be afraid to stand for what you believe in. And I truly believe that, but I think this year has been tough. Um, I agree. So if, if you look at the modern era, let's just, let's take, let's not go too far back. So let's, let's just take Reagan. So you, you, we go from, we go from Reagan and Bush one to Clinton and then back from Clinton to Bush two and then Bush two to Obama and then Obama to president Trump. It's actually the beauty of our Republic is that pendulum shifts back and forth that allows one side to figure out how to make their messaging better to win the next time the other, other side come back and we go back and forth. And that's what <clears throat> prevents there from being monarchies. And that's what prevents there from being fascism because everybody gets their voice and gets their turn to play. It's the only country in the world that has done that as effectively as we have. Yeah. To your point, and I don't mean to bag on, I don't mean to bag on some of my liberal friends. I really wish everybody could have the opportunity to run for office because you find out who your real friends are and you find out who really loves you, who really knows who you are and knows your heart, even if they may disagree with you politically. You see, I have a lot of liberal friends as well that I've grown up with. You don't spend four years at Cornell and go to private school down here in Houston and not have some liberal friends. What I find to be kind of, what I found to be interesting specifically in this cycle is that I would disagree with some of my liberal friends because I didn't disagree with their policies. I thought they had bad policy thoughts. But I found out that some of my liberal friends felt like as a conservative, as a Republican, that I was a bad person. Now, I, both sides do this, by the way. So I'm not, I'm not saying that, that we don't and Republicans sure. don't. But, but I, I found with the Trump presidency in particular, that it was certainly coming more from the other way than anything else. Now, am I willing to admit President Trump is a little bit rough around the edges, and I wish he could have phrased things and done things probably a little bit more delicately. Of course I do. Of course I do. But there are just certain values that I believe in that I have more in common with the Republican Party than the other side, and that's okay. Just like you may have your feelings or thoughts that which might make you a Democrat or make you more liberal, that you side more with the other side, and that's okay too. I also find it very interesting that people think that, all, that, that just because you are a Republican, that means you agree 100% with everything that comes out of the Republican platform. Yeah. That's not true. I also would not assume that somebody who is a Democrat agrees with 100% everything that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris says. That's not true either. We all have our top five personally. For some people, it's just one thing. And guess what? That's their right. They have one vote. They have their right. If they are a one issue voter, that's their right too. But I look at my top five and compare it with one platform compared to the other, it's not even close for me. That's okay. I think for whatever reason, we, we, we've kind of lost that because you have a media 
that was attacking the president incessantly, and then you have the president that was pouring napalm on it <laughs> every morning with 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 tweets, and yeah. then all of a sudden everybody just got um, completely just caught up in the wave of the of the uh, of just the 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 high momentum and the high swings back and forth, instead of just letting the calm rational people within the boundaries, which is actually the majority of us, speak. Yeah, so I'd love to dive into this a little bit more because yeah. um, I agree with what you're saying. Um, and and I often think about, again, for me, I have certain things that I believe in um, and, you know, and and but I also think about this idea of, and I said it when President Trump was running for president, I would say, he's just not presidential. Yeah. And people would say to me, well, what is, you know, my very conservative yes. friends would say, well, what does that even mean? And I, and, and I couldn't articulate it well. And I'd say, well, I don't, I don't know, but he's just not presidential. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking at presidents throughout my lifetime that Democrat or Republican, there was an air about them that was presidential. And I couldn't put my finger on it, but, but there was a little bit of this, for me, a little bit of this crisis of character where I was, I would like things that were happening policy-wise, but then I was having a lot of trouble digesting things that President Trump would say and, and being able to justify them and say, you know, for me, I believe in being a good person, having integrity, being morally sound. And there were things that I would see that just didn't line up with that for me. And so I struggled a lot over these last four years. And I'd love to know, because I don't think people get asked that a lot. You know, it's just like, well, you support Trump. So you support everything that he does, everything that he believes in. Um, and so did you find that at all? Where, you know, listen, I've talked to you for 20 minutes, but you are a man of character. I can tell, especially, I know people that know you uh, that are liberal and conservative. Like you are loved by many. You're a strong man who, um, who is very eloquent in the way he speaks and thoughtful, but you've got a president that, that frankly wasn't. So what did that do for you? And, and do you just- when, so we, when you say like when my you know we say your more conservative friends would say well well I don't know what that means what, what does being presidential means because I got asked that a lot as well I said I'm gonna give you a few examples this is actually quite easy a lot, a lot of people when when they like their guy they like their gal they, right. they don't they don't want to they don't want to face certain facts right I said John McCain's a war hero John McCain is gone John McCain maybe you don't agree with all, with all his policies and politics I didn't either. But Donald Trump did not serve a day in the military, nor was he a POW in the Hanoi Hilton. You don't get to besmirch his name. Right. Now, you could argue with me about that all day. Let's go, giddy up. Because that's not right. That's not right. When COVID-19 happened, we'd all, we all have our views and our takes on that. My whole family had it actually a few months back and we're fine, but we could discuss right. how we could or could not have handled it. There was a moment here when it's happened in the very beginning, where the only thing we needed to hear as a people from our leader is, look, this is tough. Let's deal with this together. Right. I don't want to see you getting in arguments with news reporters. 
people are actually scared about this and people are actually dying. And up until the moment when even the president did have COVID, look, you made it. He's a tough guy and he is a tough guy. But walking across the White House lawn, taking off your mask on the balcony for a photo op, the only thing we needed at, at that point is, is by God, I was able to get past this. I'm okay, I'm alive and well, my family is fine. How can we work together to prevent people from dying from this? And I wanna work with America to do that. I watched this Challenger, um, the, 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 uh, the shuttle Challenger, there's a Netflix special on it. And there's a moment when Reagan gives a speech after the Challenger exploded, it brought a tear to my eye. That's presidential. Yep. Now, if you don't know what that means after what I just told you, then I can't help you. But there were actually multiple moments in this time where I think past presidents would have died to be in this position. And President Trump just didn't get it right from a tone, from a leadership standpoint. Now, that's not his strength either. There are certain things that he's actually quite good at, I will tell you. There are certain things that I actually really appreciate about the presidency, we could run through those too. But what made it difficult for candidates like me in this country was differentiating ourselves from some of the talk, some of the rhetoric and some of the perception with the policies that were very sound. Yeah. And I think over the next four years, we're gonna really, we're gonna get a really big dose of just how sound those, those policies really were. We will see. But I think we as soldiers and we as Americans do understand discipline, character, what it means to have this warrior ethos, this warrior spirit within us to represent those that have come before us that sacrifice so much and we must get up every morning and honor them. Did President Trump display that on a consistent basis? No. And I think at some point you have to, even with my kids sometimes and my parents tell me, I mean, I know I got it. We think our kids are perfect. I got it, but they're not. And every now and again, we have to have a very truthful and honest conversation if we want to get better. I so appreciate the way you just approached this because it would have been very easy. Again, you know, when, when I, I'll make these off-the-cuff remarks, Trump's not presidential, you know, I don't agree, you know. And then, yeah, I have friends and family that will right away, do anything they can to defend whatever he has said or whatever he has done. And I love the fact that you can put in perspective, listen, you're the president of the United States. You're going to be criticized. And if we can't look at that and, and not have blinders on at all times, like we don't advance as a society. Like we have to be able to call it out when you do something wrong and you do something right. We are humans. We are flawed. We're going to do things wrong. And so um, I love the way that you, you address that. Um, I want to talk about your run. Yeah. So you touched on it. You ran and in a uh, challenging primary, you won by 32 points. That's huge. And then you run in the general against um, a Democrat incumbent, Lizzie Fletcher, correct? Yes. So tell us a little bit first why you decided to run for Congress. Let's start there. Yes. Okay. So again, you know, I go back to my family history and just the idea of continuing to give back to this country. Um, I think, quite frankly, we don't we don't need any more professional politicians. We don't need any more. No, I, no offense, to my lawyer friend, my best friend's a lawyer, but he'll 
he'll joke. I joke with him all the time. And he, and he will agree. I think we have plenty of attorneys in office right now. I, <laughs> I think having just pragmatic people that have laid their lives on a line for this country, we just need more of that. Um, two years ago, 2018 was the fewest number of veterans that we had in Congress in the history, um, since, since, since World War II, actually. And, and now that you start to see the post 9-11 men and women mature and get a little up there in age, we're almost 40, right? Then now, now all of a sudden you, you see us starting to give back in different ways, because if you're wired that way, you just can't help yourself. That's just, that's just who we are. My dad, my dad was a man that required us to continue to serve in some capacity. And so when I look at, at, at a district like this here in Houston, um, Houston is the energy capital of the world. This is an oil and gas town. First football team here in Houston was the Houston Oilers. I mean, it is real here. And if you look at the suburb, again, it was a 40-year Republican district, just flipped Democrat in 2018. And what I thought was actually a very off cycle, we had Beto O'Rourke down here, we had straight ticket voting. A lot of factors played a role in that. And I felt like that's not the spirit of this district at all especially if you're looking at and hearing about some of the energy policies that are coming from the Democrat party right now, particularly in Houston and what is the energy capital of the world. So I felt like at this time in my life, even though I've never run before, this is, this is a good fit. Dan Crenshaw is in the district that's just north of the, of the district that I ran in. So I got to know him, I got to know he and Tara. Dan is, is just an amazing dude. I, I mean, <laughs> salt of the earth, best guy, was very helpful in my run, but most importantly, he was an inspiration to me and other veterans to get into the fray because that's how leaders do and that's how leaders act. We step up when it's time. And so we were doing very well, coming right along, doing great, and then, and then, and then COVID hit. From a money standpoint, we were, we were the, one of the top three fundraising candidates in the entire country. Uh, I got to do Texas Reloaded with Dan. That was an awesome day, awesome ad. Um, had the opportunity to be on the Joe Rogan podcast. Actually outraised my Democrat opponent. Opponent, He was funded by Nancy Pelosi and others by over a million dollars. I mean, we did a very good job. But I think we had a lot of headwind once COVID-19 hit. And it really hurt the campaign because we weren't able to really go out and go find those swing voters like we would have had there not been COVID-19. I will also say this, you know, we have to adapt. We as a party have to adapt. We have to look at, at, at situations and, and as we said, the military is met TC defendant, we have to learn and adapt. And I think there are certain ways where not just my campaign, but also our party can learn from and, and, and adapt here for the next, for the next cycle. So you jump in yeah. um, like many, um, many post 9-11 veterans, like you said, you jump <laughs> into this race. And, you know, I, I shared with you a little bit before we started, my dad ran for Congress in 2008. Yeah. And so I know the, the trials and tribulations that come with a congressional run. It is every day, 24 hours a day. And, and frankly, you're not thinking about what happens if we lose. Like that's not even a thought in your mind. No. It's just about what do we have to do today, right? Yeah. And and what do we have to do tomorrow to to win this race? And so when the election day comes and you realize that you have not been successful, it was a crushing blow to my family. It was it was tough. And so I I know a little bit about what you went through. 
But I'd love to talk about that. Like when things don't turn out the way you expected, which can be extremely defeating, like what does that do to the momentum after you pour yourself into something only to come up short at the end goal? Well, the, the great, that's an awesome question, right? So, so, there, so you, you know, it's, it's, there's losing. And then when, when you're people like your father and people like me that are wired a certain way, meaning that this, if I work hard, when I work hard enough, I win. When I outwork my opponent, when I make more phone calls, when I knock on more doors as a team, when we have more phone banking, when I raise more money, when I have more, a bigger social media following, when I do these things over the course of a year and a half, we will win. Why? That's usually how life works. That's not always how politics work. Right. You are absolutely right. I woke up every day, I would, I would, I would call my campaign manager and I'm like, did we win today? I asked him that at least four or five times a week, did we win today? Did we knock on more doors? How much money did we raise? How are we doing? And every day, we were winning, by the way. We certainly outworked, we certainly outworked my opponent probably 5X, if I'm, if I'm being honest. To wake up the next day and to pour your heart and soul, just like you just said, Miss, and to not win is debilitating. Now, if I didn't try that hard, if we got outworked, got outraged, if we just got beat, it's way easier to digest, way easier to digest. But when you do what we did and you, and you don't get the results, particularly when you look at other candidates that didn't work nearly as hard as you did, but, but they are now congressmen and women, oh, it's rough. It's rough. It's still rough. It takes its toll on you. Yeah. But then you have the next day. And then again, back to these. So then there's two types of people. Then there's the next day. And I'm sitting in bed and I'm just completely dejected at this point. And then you realize literally the next day. So the next campaign has now officially started. I have a choice. I could wallow in my misery or wallow in the ills of destruction and defeat or, or the next time we don't win or lose, we learn. And the next time we're going to win based on the lessons that we've learned in this loss. Two kinds of people. I don't have the luxury to not pick myself up, get my family back in this thing, get back on the horse and go do this again in some capacity in two or four years. I don't have the capacity to not be able to do that because I talk about your brother and our 14 classmates that are no longer here for us to be able to make our country better. And we don't get to sit back and wallow in our misery because we lost. Because we're type A alpha guys who don't usually lose. It's, it's the worst thing ever to us. But at least we're here to try to win again. And so whenever I tell people to pick, your, pick yourself back up and as hard as this was, and I mean, I mean, I'm talking, this is bad. I don't like to lose in like pool. I don't like losing in ping pong. I don't like losing. <laughs> like, I don't like losing at all. So to lose this in this manner, still every day I get up I, and, I, and I still struggle with it. And oh, I it hasn't been that long. Yeah, for sure. It hasn't been that long, right. It's just been about a month and a half. But who's like, yeah. it's been, I don't know, like, like a month and I don't know, 16 days, whatever, neither here nor there. I'm not, but who's counting? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's all, about, it's all about the comeback. And if you read any story of any great man or woman that has done anything significant in this country, 
they had to overcome something. Yep. They had to, everyone. There's not a single person that has done anything worthwhile that has ever graced this earth that didn't have to go through some diversity. Because you learn so much more through losing than if you did through winning. Oh, absolutely. So. So you kind of said it, but you didn't really say it. Are you, are you running for Congress again? Are you just back in it? So um, we are redistricting here in Texas. So the state legislature is going to draw some new lines. I okay. think Texas, as of right now, don't know for sure, might, may get two or three more new districts. Presumably one will probably be in the greater Houston area. So we'll take a look and see what the map looks like. And then we'll go from there. Okay. Um, so so you are, certainly, you're not, you're not, uh, you're not rolling it out. Oh, absolutely not. No, no. I'm, in fact, if, if, I had, if I were a betting man, yeah, I'll be running again. Okay. I like that. It's funny because after my dad lost, and again, we were not a family that was, you know, involved in politics in any way. This was very foreign to us, but um, my dad felt compelled to serve in this way and step forward just like you did. And, um, you know, that next day, you know, this crushing blow every day going, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't believe it. But, but it very much put it in perspective for us. I mean, my brother had been killed in Iraq yeah. a, a year prior. Like, listen, like, yeah, this sucks, but it, it, it yeah. does, it pales in comparison to what these men and women are doing. Exactly. So we were able to, um, it was able to be much more palatable because we knew um, what was most important in our lives. But uh, right away, you know, people were saying, all right, well, you got to run again, Colonel, you got to run again. And my dad was like, you know, I feel like I can be, more useful somewhere else. And um, I just don't know that he had it in him. It was just so hard, you know, for our family. And you got it too, I'm sure. Like the first time someone says something negative about you and you're like, wait, what? Like, what? how how could someone be talking negatively about us? (laughs) You know, and and the idea of picking up and, and, you know, you raise millions of dollars and then you lose this race and you have to turn around to your friends and family and say, Hey, sorry, sorry, you maxed out on my campaign and I didn't make it across the finish line. Like that's, that's tough, but. Yeah. And then, but the, you know, the beauty of it is though, every, I I went back and called most of my donors and and I I basically apologized. I felt felt like I let them down Yeah. Um, before I could even say a word. But like this, this is literally, I would almost say 100% of the time before I could even finish the sentence. They're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Call me when you run again. I will definitely support you again. We need you in there. Yeah. Well, I I hope that you'll run. I think you'd be a a fantastic congressman. What's one thing that you learned during that campaign about yourself? Is there anything you can think of? The one thing that I learned, the most important thing that I learned is, and this is going to sound kind of, kind of cliche, if you will. Texas is amazing. When I, I oftentimes found myself, if you, if you could imagine suburbs, Houston, predominantly white, affluent areas, I would find myself in homes with 80 people in them. And I was the only black person in the room. And they were there to contribute and they were there to see me. And they wanted me to represent them in the halls of Congress. 
I got so much energy from walking into these rooms that I could never tire of this. Anytime somebody asks me, how do you, how do you have the energy to do this? Like, what do you do? I mean, on your, today it's your fifth event. How can you possibly even formulate sentences even more? Well, one thing is God made me an extrovert. So I get get a lot of fuel from other people. But secondly, it's if these people are taking their time and their resources because they want to see me represent them and be one of 435 men and women in Congress, and I represent them, how, there's no greater honor than that, actually. There really isn't. And what I learned about myself is that I am actually, I'm actually driven by helping and being a part of the solution and being a part of the people that do pass legislation in this country. Because the problem is, is this, if we're going to ask someone to pay the ultimate sacrifice in the defense of this great nation, I think we need more people making decisions that have been there. Well, you lead me into the next question that I was going to ask you, and you gave me the perfect segue. You know, historically, 31 out of our 46 presidents have served in the armed forces, which is something that I am passionate about. I serve on the board for With Honor, uh, a PAC uh, that helps veterans, Republicans, and Democrats get elected to Congress. And representation in Congress for veterans is historically low. What qualities do you think veterans possess that position them to represent our country and government outside of everything you've talked about, the understanding of men and women that make the ultimate sacrifice, um, understanding what it means to serve? Is there anything else that you can pinpoint that makes them uniquely qualified? Yes, it's, it's grit is what it is. It takes a lot of grit. It takes a lot of discipline. And most importantly, it takes a lot of, I think I used the word before, I used to make fun of this word when I was at West Point. Again, it's the word, it's the word intestinal fortitude. So I actually, now that I think about this, I actually brought up Dan Crenshaw just a second ago, but, but this is also fascinating. So President Trump made a comment about John McCain. Very few people stood up and said anything about it. A negative pejorative comment about him. And this is after he even passed on. And Dan Crenshaw made a tweet about a year and a half, maybe a year, year and a half, that said, Mr. President, please stop talking about John McCain. Yeah. Now, did he, got, did he get a lot of heat for that? Of course he did. But, but that's the kind of people that are like, see, look, it, you can say what you want about me. I am going to have the courage to say that, even if it means I might lose your vote. Right. That's the difference between service members and, non, and non-service members. It's the idea of, kind of like we were talking about with losing your brother and, 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 your, and you and your family having to deal with this loss. And that is, at the end of the day, it's not 2006. I'm not flying around in Apache and I'm not getting shot at in downtown Baghdad. I've been there before. If it means me making a tough decision or making the tough call, even if it's unpopular, even if it's unpopular for my constituency, well, then guess what? I can deal with that. And if you don't vote me in office the next time, then that's your prerogative. But that doesn't mean that I am going to forego my principles and what I believe in to make sure that I do the right thing. And I think we're just inherently wired that way, even the Naval Academy guys. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. It's true, though. I mean, I think there is a certain level of grit that comes with serving in the military. and, And it's some of these things just can't be taught outside of the military. And I think, you know, it's, it's grit and it's perspective. 
And you can talk all day long about uh, you understanding the challenges that our, our service members and their families face. But if you have not lived it, you don't, you cannot <laughs> fully understand and have that perspective. No, no. So, um, I, you know, I, I am a proponent for um, mandatory service for all Americans in some capacity. I think that our young men and women need to understand what it means to serve. And it may not all be in the military, and that's okay. But there are so many ways through the Peace Corps, Teach for America, that young people need to understand this idea of selfless service, of stepping outside of themselves, of not looking towards what am I going to do for me today? What am I going to do for me tomorrow? And I think that's, in some ways, that's how we're grooming our next generation. And we've got to look at it differently. And that's why I love the work that we do at TMF is all about making sure that our military veterans are actually taking the lessons that they've learned and passing them on to our youth. So they understand what it means to be a servant leader in their own backyards. Uh, There's so much that can be done. And we have fantastic, and I I have to get you connected more with the work we're doing with youth in, um, in the Houston area, because you would be a fantastic character does matter mentor. So I'm going to put that out there to maybe get you, <laughs> get you on the hook. Um, you know, it, it's just, it's so important for kids to understand this idea. And, uh, and I think you touched on it. And what, what character strengths in yourself do you think have allowed you to accomplish what you've accomplished in life? My parents, we used to have a, a whiteboard in our, in our house. And, and, it, and it said, God plus education equals success. And the idea of being driven, I think that's the character thing that I have is just driven to do more with the combination of making sure that I, I believe and have a fearful, healthy, fearful understanding of the God that we all serve, that I, excuse me, that I serve, and understanding the importance of education being the great equalizer, regardless of your race, religion, color, creed, sexual orientation, will lead you to success in this country. I think I have an unwavering belief in that. I think it's four degrees and I still believe in God. So hopefully I, I, will, I will ultimately uh, be, <laughs> uh, be successful uh, is something that I believe is inherently the great equalizer amongst, amongst us all. And my desire, my desire that I have for the world to understand that basic formula. Now in education, it doesn't necessarily even have to be Ivy League degrees. I'm talking about educating yourself, educating your body, mind, body, soul, spirit, all these. Education is a very broad, it's a, it's a very broad spectrum antibiotic about this. Yeah. So, so, so that's kind of like the panacea that I like to use for this example, but educate yourself, serve a higher power. In this country, you will be successful. I believe in that. I think more than anyone can ever know. And even if it means, you know, <laughs> lack of a better word, dragging my wife and my two-year-old and my three-month-old around on the campaign trail through all corners of Congressional District 7 here in Houston, I think that's the message that we can all benefit from. And I'm going to die for that message. And that's just kind of, again, it just kind of makes us different. Uh, and, and, I, and again, I'm not special. I'm not the only person that feels this way. When I talk to a room of veterans, they are, they just, all, all you see is just head, heads, Heads nodding, 
when I see that happen, I realize that a lot of people are still looking for us to step up, get back in the fight, even if it doesn't mean, you know, kinetic operations abroad. Yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, again, it gets back to what we say. Men and women who serve, they come home, they take off the uniform. It's not like, thanks for your service. Yeah. <laughs> Travis Manion Foundation, it's like, thanks for serving in the military. We now need you to serve. That's exactly right. With us. And, yeah. and not, and they, and you guys need that too. I mean, you're, you're, you've been given this opportunity to serve in the military. You don't come home and lose that sense of service. You don't come home and say, okay, I'm done. Um, so we have found that, you know, it, it contributes to the overall health and well-being, mental health and well-being of the veterans that are part of our organization. Um, and, and in part, they're giving back and helping to instill character and these fundamental values of leadership and service in our next generation. I mean, it is a win-win for this country. I agree. So, I agree. well, I, um, this has been an awesome conversation. Uh, right. You are, um, you're everything that I thought um, <laughs> from what I've heard. Um, and, and, uh, I love, I love your exuberance. I love your passion. Uh, it, you know, you can feel it. And so, um, and I love your perspective. I love your perspective that, um, about this, you know, collective middle that, that there, there's so much good happening mm -hmm. and we, we don't have to look too far for it. Like you said, like go outside your house. How are you interacting with your neighbors? <laughs> with, you know, I mean, that's how you base what, what's happening around you. I love that. I ask my guests the same question as we lead out um, each episode, and I'm going to ask it to you. And, and the final question is, what does living a resilient life look like for you? Living a resilient life looks like this to me. You have to wake up every single day and put your feet on the ground. And again, I think I, I say this on like every day, just about putting my feet on free American soil and breathing free American air. And knowing that the word resilience means that even on days that aren't perfect, even on days where you're kind of down, even on days where you're kind of down and out, as I have even experienced over the course of the past month, you have to be resilient enough in yourself to continue to find joy in life, remember those that pay the ultimate sacrifice and have the resiliency to continue to find a way to serve. Right now, I kind of feel like I'm on the bench, but resilience will be me walking through the halls of Congress as a congressman two years from now. And I need to start working now to achieve that goal then. I think that's the definition of being a resilient person and living a resilient life. I love that. And as a Gold Star sister, I can't thank you enough. It's my honor. For your commitment and it, it it's not just i can tell it's not just you saying it you know the the idea that you what you do is for the men and women who have given their lives in service to this country um i'm surrounded every day by incredible gold star families and the biggest thing for them is that their loved ones are not forgotten that their sacrifices are not forgotten and to know that you're out there each and every day living your life remembering those 14 men and women that you served with mm -hmm. and at at west point that you graduated with uh it's important um and it matters and i thank you for living your life and taking their memories forward and carrying their legacies west this has been awesome 
Uh, so great to finally connect with you. I am going to get down to Houston soon. Right. And when I do, I'm going to link up with you and I'm going to uh, make sure I get you signed up for an ambassador training to be a mentor for our next generation. <laughs> there you go. And, um, you know, keep doing what you're doing. I think you've got a really positive story. And um, I think you can galvanize people on both sides of the aisle because at the end of the day, like you said, it's not about being a Republican or a Democrat. It's about being American. Right. And um, and you should surely showcase that. So thank you so much for joining us on The Resilient Life. My, it's my pleasure and God bless you. all Thank you for joining us for another episode of The Resilient Life podcast. Please make sure to like, subscribe and share with your friends.